0: Welcome to the 175th installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's podcast on family farming, sustainable agriculture, local food systems, and local democracy. I'm Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. In Ear to the Ground 173 and 174... We discussed Indiana's Conservation Cropping Systems Initiative, an integrated team approach that has brought together farmers, conservation agency experts, scientists, and agribusiness firms. Their common goal is to improve soil health in the Hoosier State by establishing, among other things, more cover crops in corn and soybean fields that are normally bare from late fall into early spring. The Conservation Cropping Systems Initiative's approach has turned out to be quite successful with approximately 1 million acres of Indiana cropland now protected with cover crops. This success has come at a time when many other Corn Belt states are struggling to increase cover crop acres significantly, and Indiana has become a national model for promoting and supporting soil-friendly farming practices. It's hoped that this success with cover cropping will prompt Indiana farmers to go beyond this one practice and establish integrated, holistic production systems that can build soil health in the long term. I recently attended a series of Conservation Cropping Systems Initiative field days in Indiana. While there, I talked to several farmers who are at various stages of adopting and utilizing soil-friendly practices such as cover cropping. One of those farmers was Gordon Smiley, who, along with his brother Jeff, farms 1,200 acres of row crops in southern Indiana. They have a farrow-to-finish hog operation, and the cover crops offer a way to soak up excess nutrients and reduce runoff while increasing their soil's tilth. Gordon talked to me about his experience with cover cropping and the key role the Conservation Cropping Systems Initiative has played in helping him make soil health improvement a central part of the Smiley Farms operation.
1: Uh, we tried cover crops in 2010 with some radish. that After reading some things, thought it would be great. Planted it with the planter, did an absolutely perfect job. It didn't rain, had an absolutely zero crop with it. But we weren't deferred, it's just the fact it didn't rain. And so uh, since 2011, we've been able to plant all 1,200 acres of crops and cover crops one way or another. Some of them has been successful, some of them have been not. It's a learning experience, and I think the thing that got us going with it was that since we have the livestock manure in the past, and we apply a lot of manure in the fall, uh, we were trying to make sure we were utilizing every bit of it. Uh, didn't want to lose anything. We wanted to u- fully utilize it. So um, when we applied cover crops in the fall of 2011, and then we knifed in manure about three weeks after the cover crop been planted, it went dark green and that was our aha moment that just really set us up and kind of excited us and, and then we saw what it was starting to do really two years after we'd been doing it to the soil tilt and uh, so from that point forward uh, we've gotten rid of the tanker and went to a drag line system because the other component of the of the livestock and manure was the compaction and so our whole idea was to get rid of compaction we have owned uh, track tractors for 10 years and the whole idea in the past has been to always continually to think about that compaction so those roots will grow down and so a combination with the cover crops being able to grow deep uh, we've been lucky to have uh, the NRCS locally to also come out in the spring and do some soil probes for us so we've been up to find these what these cover crops are doing. So between turning green and seeing how deep the roots are going, this is uh, kind of our aha moments.
0: Why did you feel like you had it to, to, you know, it's a little bit of an extra hassle to do the cover crop? Was there some economic and maybe even environmental reasons why you thought maybe you needed to, to take on the extra hassle?
1: Well, in our case, with the... Uh, Livestock. We were already having to do a nutrient management plan, so we we, we knew what we were doing there. We're taking uh, soil samples every three years and knowing our levels and these things like this. But we also. We were trying to make sure we weren't losing any of that nitrogen that we were fall applying because of our time frame. We needed to apply it in the fall, but we didn't want didn't to lose it. And I guess when we talk about the economics of it, well, we had seen and read a lot of uh, articles about people that were no-tilling with it. At that point in time, we had only no-tilled soybeans the corn stubble. We had not no-tilled uh, corn onto beans or corn onto corn. And so with that we thought well if we can do the cover crops we will get rid of the fall tillage and possibly the spring tillage and so we could go to a straight no till so it was an economic move and uh, we actually sold the chisel plow about in 2013 and so we made the commitment we couldn't go to the shed and get it out
0: That's a good point yeah that sometimes people drag them out of the weeds once they've uh, something goes wrong
1: That's exactly right I mean we we just we cut ties and we said this is what we're going to do and we can make it work we had a really good Agronomists that uh, we felt like that we could lean on to with lots of questions, but we attended uh, no-till meetings and we also attended um, soil health meetings and uh, learned from a lot of other people. It was uh, we we really went to other people who had a lot of experience and and so we didn't do their same mistakes.
0: I think that's a good point, and one of the things that struck me just here in the past few days is the kind of team effort almost, that there's different agencies and private businesses involved and farmers willing to share information. I mean, how important is that to kind of have that I guess network available for some, when you're doing a transition like this.
1: Oh, it's it's absolutely huge. I mean, we all have got to make our own mistakes. It's just like putting an airplane up in the air and saying, "Oh, it's going to work." You know, it worked for us perfect for a year or two if it rains all the time. But if you put an airplane up in the air and it doesn't rain, it doesn't work either. And so we all learn. But that team effort is totally huge, and we all have to accept, you know, how good we want to be. Do we want to be 10 out of 10, or do we want to be? I'll take a 7 out of 10 and just so I don't risk at all because if we go for 10 out of 10, sometimes we end up 2 out of 10 and it's not quite as good. Can you think of some examples where maybe you ran into a little bit of a
0: roadblock and you were able to maybe get some information or get some support that way to get over that a little bit
1: oh uh, young man our uh, neighbor of ours roger winning has absolutely been into this no-till for 20 years and roger's been a great source of information terry taylor in southern illinois has taken us under his wing and we can call terry up at any time and so i think that whether it in state or out of state we've found really good people who have been doing particularly the no-till for a long time but they they made the comment to us he said no-till's great but when you add no-till and cover crops together they just it's not 2 plus 2 now. It's it's 2 plus 2 is equal to 6.
0: You know, one of the things you had mentioned before was you were, it's one of your goals, it sounds like your farm's goals, is to kind of leave the land better than you found it. And you had kind of maybe come to the conclusion a few years ago that that wasn't the case, that you you weren't seeing that. It sounds like maybe now integrating the no-till and the cover cropping has helped you kind of honestly say to yourself, well, maybe we are headed in that direction of leaving it better than we found it.
1: Well, we would hope so. In other words, we, even though we're on relatively low uh, slopes, as far as two to five percent at the most, we don't have huge erosion. But you can have a a pretty big erosion in a three-inch rain. You know, when it's April fifteenth and you got the ground worked, and so you still got that to us as a point that we really don't want to have those events happening to us. And so, from that standpoint of view, with some kind of cover crop out there, we're not. Gutsy enough just yet to go plant green. That's probably one of our things down the road we're going to try. We're still killing it uh, when it gets uh, 15 to 20 inches tall, is our goal right now. But we take small steps and, and, and we'll try these other steps. But we also have to remember the carbon nitrogen ratio and some of these things of, of what we tie up. But I think with the livestock thing, we learned probably really quick of, of how well that those uh, cover crops are taking up those nutrients so we aren't worrying about them going down the streams.
0: Uh, can you g- give me what an average year looks like as far as when you're planting the, the cover crops, when what, how you're planting them in, and, and what you're, what kind of mixes you're using?
1: Well, average this year, when we've, we've changed, and we, this year we think that we finally settled on that we are going to do seed-to-soil contact is very, very important for us. So we have went out and found a uh, used 45-foot drill, and we're going to put it right behind the combine, uh, whether it be beans or corn. Probably behind beans, Uh, we're going to run cereal rye, uh, 20 pounds, barley at 15, oats at 10, probably a pound of rape. And uh, maybe a pound of uh, outside clover. And it's going to be about 43 pound mix, and then uh, we will take the uh, the rape will be in after corn, I guess, and then we'll put uh, earlier on we'll we'll use the radish in behind the soybeans. And so we want something. We want four out of five that'll survive all winter.
0: So when you when you able to get that in? I mean, when you're taking corn off. I don't know what when is that working.
1: Well, we tried something a little different this year, too. We planted some uh, 2.8 to 3.1 beans, and so we hope by the 10th of September we'll be pulling some soybeans off, and we should be pulling corn off by September 20th. And so we, we're, we've actually moved our uh, maturity up just a little bit on our crops, thinking down the road this is like we 'd be doing. But uh, with cereal rye and barley both being able to germinate at 40 degrees, we planted stuff as late as November the 15th and still get them to grow here in southern Indiana. So uh, we 're not discouraged, we just know that the the quicker growth, the better off
0: what do you what are you uh, looking down the road here now that you 've been you said you kind of two thousand and eleven was your first successful year, so we 're four years down the road. What are you seeing are you Is it too early to see some of the results some positive results or are you starting to see some impacts both in the soil and maybe even, I don't know, economically, if you've been able to pencil that out yet.
1: I don't know that we've been able to pencil it out for sure just yet, but Jeff and I both carry a spade around with us in the uh, trucks, and, and we're always sticking the spade in the ground looking. And, and the other encouraging thing is that uh, if you wanted to go fishing with me April 15th, I could go out to the bean field and dig enough earthworms up to do that. I don't have to go to a special spot, and we've never been able to find that many earthworms of that size at that time of the year. And so the earthworm population is just telling us that that is our deep tilly tool. Uh, we find holes down two feet deep and so we know that we can't put a piece of steel that deep and we're excited about what we're seeing with those. Uh, we it was I think it was early April. We had like a three inch rain one night and um, we got a creek or an open ditch that uh, mostly all the water through that open ditch comes off the property we control and all of its cover cropped and uh, then we have a creek right oh it's probably 400 yards down the road from there that basically drains a bunch of property off the neighbors and i just simply took a picture coming out of that open ditch where the cover crops were and it was basically clean i won't say perfectly clean but very clean after a three inch rain and i drove right down the road and took another picture and you could see the brown silt in it and it was just the coloration difference and so we felt good that we what we were doing is in the right direction
0: one of the things I talked to Barry Fisher about, to and and Dr. Ray Weil about was this, and and this has been brought up repeatedly this week. Is this whole idea of We, there's been, frankly, agriculture's gotten a bit of a black eye in recent years with the, well, the Chesapeake Bay example was the one Ray wild talked about, and then we've got the Erie uh, Lake Erie situation, and then the lawsuit that the Des Moines Water Works is involved with. One of the things I I think that's positive about what's happening here in Indiana is you guys seem to be taking a proactive approach, and that, that whole idea of if we don't... If we don't figure out a way to do this uh, in a proactive way, maybe it's going to be forced down our throats, and we're not going to like how it's done. How important is that to you? I mean, this—you guys are—you know—I've looked. One of the reasons I'm here is I've seen the statistics. You're a leader in in the number of cover crop acres you got established here, and there seems to be this real integrated approach and proactive approach at taking the bull by the horns on this situation. Before maybe it's not a, a, a voluntary situation.
1: Well, I think it's, uh, you know, from the livestock with the nutrient management plan, we've had to do. I think that's one thing from our side. But I guess we're all curious, and farmers always like to do a better job. And I would encourage anybody to take 20 acres. And just, you know, try the cover crop. And it's one of those things that we say, oh, I can't do that. Well, that's not necessarily the case until we try it and see what really happens. You know, we we don't want to admit failure before we even try something. I mean, something that's really wild that we tried this year. We double-cropped beans behind our barley. Well, it was so wet that we couldn't get the double-cropped beans. I mean, we got them in, but we couldn't get the manure on like we normally put on for even though it was going on bean ground. Well, we put uh, drag line manure on double crop beans five weeks after they were planted and they were 10, 12 inches tall, maybe killed 10 to 15% of them. And it looks like we're going to have a great crop. And so what we've learned about the manure with the drag line is that we get that cover crop established. That's a priority. Then whenever you can get the manure to it, It'll be fine, and it's uh, you don't turn them around. You get you get that green crop going, so you get those roots started. And so just try a little bit. And even if it's working with a neighbor because he's got the right equipment, we'll bring him in and let him do a little bit. It's, uh, you know, it's not, 20 acres we can all risk. It's not the whole farm.
0: It's another way of farmers showing that they're being innovative and, and maybe looking at, yeah, there were some issues with, uh, I know one of the, the messages that came out this week was there's a lot of economic benefits, agronomic benefits that can come from cover cropping, and it can be a win-win because it can help produce cleaner water.
1: Yeah, and I think the other thing I think that we have done, we talked about where do we learn from. I mean, I am, um, and a lot of us, you know, the young people use YouTube and podcast or whatever else. If you get on YouTube and do a, a, a search for soil health or things like that, there's lots of people that's put out great things that you can listen to, you can watch. And so uh, that's how we learn from others. And so it's a team effort, and they're not necessarily your neighbor f- right next door, but it's a team from Nebraska, Minnesota, wherever. Somebody's already tried it. So, uh, And then if you need to, after it's over, pick up the phone and call them.
0: As you're looking to the future and trying to uh, integrate this more into your system, what's kind of some, a barrier or a, a, I guess a frustration that you're trying to deal with? I mean, you're obviously coming to these field days to learn something, or but uh, what was something that you like? Ah, uh, if we could get that figured out, that would really help help us get over the hump a little bit.
1: Well, I think uh, our next thing is uh, looking at these specific cocktail mixes, find a, we're not going to find the silver, you're not going to find a silver bullet, but they're saying, you know, if you mix four, five, six together, we just don't understand how they all work together, but it's really, really positive. And maybe we're looking for that one or two things, you know, that somebody's put in their mix that's really good. Uh, I think next year we're going to try the fact that uh, we may plant a 10-way mix right after our wheat or whatever and, and let it go. And they talk about being able to raise soil organic maybe a half to three quarters of a percent in one year. Well, that would be huge because now we're talking about water holding capacity and all kinds of things. So maybe this would be a good plan that we could mix it all together.
0: You can read more about the Conservation Cropping Systems Initiative in the article King of the Cover Crops, which appears in the number 4, 2015 edition of the Land Stewardship Letter. It's available at www.landstewardshipproject.org. If you have comments or suggestions about this podcast, contact Brian DeVore at bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org or you can call 612-722-6377. Thanks to Laura Borgendell, Western Minnesota musician, for Ear to the Ground's theme music. And a special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member, visit landstewardshipproject.org to learn how you can support LSP. Thanks for listening.